invest in the right people earlier. Sometimes I was scared to spend the money. Sometimes you need to spend the money. Welcome to In the Thick of It. I'm your host, Scott Hallrow. If you're an entrepreneur and your business has ever won any kind of award, you know what it feels like to see your company's name up in lights. One of the most memorable moments for me as a business owner was making the Aggie 100 list. Today's guest, Jennifer Devine, founder and CEO of Divine Consulting, knows exactly what I'm talking about because it was at one of these events where we first connected. In this episode, she shares how she went from being an accountant to buying an existing small accounting consulting business and growing it into a company with 10 employees. We talk about what it was like leaving a stable corporate job to start her own business, pivoting the company's offerings over time, hiring and managing staff, including her sister, the challenges faced in the early startup days, building company culture and values, and goals for future growth. Jennifer, thank you so much. Welcome to headquarters here. Appreciate you making the drive up from Houston. Real quick, just introduce yourself. So I'm Jennifer Devine. I own Divine Consulting. We're an outsourced accounting firm. And you're based in, in Houston. I'm based in Houston, just southwest of Houston in Sugarland. Booming area. Got some friends down there. Yes, very nice. It just keeps sprawling outside of Houston. The Dallas area is uh, very, very much the same. Yeah. So did you grow up in Houston? I did not. I was actually born in Ohio, near Cleveland. Okay. You Browns fan? I'm not really a football fan. Okay. Although my husband is a huge A&M Aggies fan. <laughs> Love it. We'll get more into this later, but you are a fellow Aggie 100 honoree. Congratulations. I am. Thank you. That was a huge honor. That's probably one of the highlights of being in business for me. I second that. So grew up in Ohio. How did you find yourself in Texas? That was my mom got remarried and we moved to Texas. Okay. Pretty much. How old were you when you when you moved? So I was 11. We moved to spring. I went to spring high school. I wouldn't say there's a whole lot to say about that. I moved a lot when I was a little kid. Where all did you live? We just moved a lot. So in Ohio, I moved in third grade. I moved twice in sixth grade because once in my living with my grandmother when my mom got divorced. And when she remarried in the middle of sixth grade, we moved to Texas. And then in seventh grade, we moved again. Where'd you move to that time? That's where we finally ended up was in seventh grade. And I finished out high school there. What kind of student were you as a kid? I would call myself a goody two-shoes, probably. <laughs> I mean, I did really well in school. I mean, A student, always in the AP classes, I guess. Were you involved in things outside of school? Did you play sports? I played basketball for two years, but then it was sort of a choice of you're not really going to play varsity. So I quit <laughs> and then I worked. What was your first job? I love hearing about people's first job. My first job was at a toy store. I don't think I lasted very long. So my really first, first job, I worked at a shoe store for a lot of years. Women's shoes. They don't have these anymore, but there used to be like naturalizers, shoe stores, and I forget the other name of them. But yeah, I sold shoes. The toy store, though, like those are almost a thing of the past now. Like Walmart or Target is where you get toys now. Like KB Toys is gone. Toys R Us is gone. KB Toys might have been where I worked, actually. <laughs> I don't even remember the name, but it was in the mall. Yeah, they're really not. Yeah. I have distinct memories of walking the aisles at KB Toys in the mall when I was a kid. So you moved a lot. I moved a couple times growing up. And I was actually talking to somebody about this the other day. I think that moving is a good way for kids and young adults to build resilience. Does that resonate with you at all? I think you're right on that. You know, I had to make new friends all the time. You know, I was really disappointed when I moved my last time because I really wanted to be a cheerleader, which is really funny because I don't see myself as a cheerleader at all right now. But I didn't make it because I wasn't popular because nobody knew me, you know, so that was hard as a kid. And I think in those years when you're in junior high, those are the worst years to move to. So you do have to build up some resilience and you have to learn how to get along with other people and make friends and also deal with bullies. So I moved toward the end of seventh grade, so middle school, and I totally relate to that. I can still remember some names and faces of some kids that were less than uh, pleasant. Yes. So I get that. You graduate high school in spring in the Houston area. Okay. And what was next? Well, I went to A&M. It was the only school I applied to. My boyfriend at the time went to A&M, so I thought, well, I'll go there. I don't know. Late 90s, early 2000s? Early 90s? Early 90s. Okay. <laughs> All right. So starting at A&M, early 90s, I have uh, in-laws who were there at that time as well. 
what was college like for you? What did you study? So I went into A&M. I was going to be a math major because that's what I was good at in school. I was terrible at it in college. When you went into that major, what did you think you were going to do post-college? Did you want to teach? I have no idea. That's what I was good at. So that's what I was going to do. Because I feel like sometimes, like my son right now, he has no idea what he wants to do when he goes to school. But I don't think we always know. And then when I, you know, I switched, I took physics in college and I was failing miserably and had to drop it. And I was like, what am I going to do? So I took an accounting class. Really, it's how I ended up in accounting. I thought, oh, this resonates with me, right? Like, I'm good at this. This is easy. There's a math element. There's a math element. But to me, it's more logic than anything. So ever since I took that first class, I just continued on. Accounting is not something that most people would take for fun or to just check it out. What prompted you to take that accounting class in the first place? You you were a math major, not a business major, right? Right. I really don't know. Like, I really don't remember why I ended up in accounting, but perhaps I was just went into the business school, I think. And that was one of the courses you had to take was like, what, accounting 101 or something, right? And it just stuck with me. I don't even remember. I just kind of, I fell into it. It clicked. It made sense. Um, it feels really good when something like that just clicks and you know it and you're like, I've got the rhythm and I know this and gives you a lot of confidence to move forward with it. It's also interesting to me because a lot of people you meet, they went to college and they studied something in college and they don't continue to do it anymore. It's not anything that they do now. I'm one of the only people I feel like sometimes I run into that I still do the same thing. Right. So you take that first math class. I assume that after that, you transferred into the business school from the math department and you got a, what was your degree in accounting? Yes, I got a degree in accounting. And did you do the five-year PPA program? I did not. At the time, to get your CPA license, you didn't have to. So I did end up getting my CPA license after a few tries. I would hate to take it now, but... I applaud anybody who takes it in the first place. What did you end up doing immediately after college? I got a job out of college. I moved back to spring because I guess sometimes you go back to what you know, right? I don't remember the first job I had. You know, I had a couple. And then I ended up landing at a place called... I think it's U.S. delivery. It's not around anymore. And I was there for a few years. And then my biggest job I ended up having was a developer in Houston. A real estate developer? Yes. I always find this to be a funny story because I really wanted a new job. And I thought I had an interview and I couldn't get a hold of my recruiter, verify that I had an interview. And so I was like, well, I guess it's better to show up for an interview I don't have than to not show up for an interview right? So I just went. I didn't have an interview. But they interviewed me anyways, and I got the job. For young people listening, that is such a wise thing that you did. I cannot tell you how many people we have had no show for interviews. It, like, it happens way, way too often. It blows me away. It tells me that there's just a lot of people out there that aren't very serious, and you clearly were very serious and intentional, and you knew what you wanted, and you went after it. And I love that job. Like, I worked there for, from 2000 until I started my company. And to this day, they're still my client, too. That's awesome. Yeah. So, I, you know, we left on really good terms. I kind of got everything where I wanted it there, and it was time for the next step. But I did. I loved working there. It was family. Something you said there, you left on good terms. That, again, is something else that I think is missing from a lot of people these days. And it pays not to burn bridges, A, because it's the right thing to do, and B, because, you know, the ongoing impact it can have on on a business, it's just so important. It really, really is. And I think sometimes people don't really understand that these days, right? I mean, I just recently had someone leave, and she left us with really good terms, too, Right. She did the right thing. And it can work the other way, too, where you have to let someone go because it's just not working. Doesn't mean they're a bad person. Doesn't mean anything. Is But we can part ways and it'd be okay if we all try to do the right thing. Completely agree. Let's go back to your first job. You said it was a package delivery. So actually, my first job, I couldn't even tell you the name of the company, but I went there and I remember sitting there and I'm like, I don't have anything to do. Like, they weren't giving me work. I really didn't even understand why I was there. So that was really hard because, like, that was my very, very first job. I remember sitting in these, like, really nice glass cubicles. This is what I remember of it. But doing nothing. I'm like, I want to do stuff. (laughs) 
<laughs> right? <laughs> and so I looked for another job after that, and that's when I ended up at a delivery price. Most people that go through the accounting programs and go through the gargantuan effort of sitting for the CPA, typically the path is you go into public accounting and you do that for at least a couple of years, if not, you know, continue on and do the partner track. That wasn't of interest to you? Really never was one thing that crossed my mind that I really wanted to do. And knowing people have done it, I'm kind of glad I didn't. <laughs> it sounds terrible. <laughs> a lot of hours worked. I would just went into corporate. I always worked for, you know, companies doing their accounting. So I don't know. You like being in-house. I do, which is interesting because really now we're not in-house. But, you know, one of the things we try to be really big is we want to be part of everybody's team. We don't want to just be like, oh, I almost take offense to this. We don't want to just be your bookkeeper. You know, we're more than that. <laughs> we'll get more into it in a minute. But like you say, you're not in-house. And, and I guess technically it's true. Like right. you, you sit in your own office. But in your world, you really are an extension of their team and you are their their back office, right? Correct. So working for the real estate developer, you said you loved it. You said it was like family. What was that moment? What was that spark? What was that point in time where you're like, you know what? I'm going to leave this great thing I've got here and I'm going to go do something else that's also kind of risky. So I got hired there to run their operational accounting out of Cabo San Lucas. Were you spending time in Cabo? I was. I got to travel. It was the best travel job ever. <laughs> I probably went in the beginning, you know, maybe once a month to Cabo. It was really exciting. So I want to sound really nerdy, but like at the time they were running a accounting program in Mexico and a separate accounting program in the U.S. and they were trying to make them match. And so while I was there, I got to implement the system. It's old now, but... <laughs> But I made it so they could do all their reporting out of one system. What system was that that you guys implemented? It was Solomon. Familiar? It's still around. It's still around, yeah. You'll run into people still running it. But that was a really exciting time. And they developed these really multi-million dollar homes up the side of this mountain and put in a club and did all these really cool things. And But I got to a point where I had everything running smooth, in my opinion. Maybe they'd feel different. But I thought from an accounting perspective, we were really running everything really smooth. And I was bored. If I'm being honest, I just got bored. I'm sensing a theme. I don't like to be bored. You talked about that first job where you were doing nothing. Nothing, right. And there are a lot of people in the marketplace today that would be very happy to collect a paycheck and do nothing. But you have that inner desire, that need to be productive and contribute. Yeah. I don't sit around well. Most entrepreneurs don't. <laughs> no. And the interesting thing about the company that I worked for, I think they hired a lot of people somehow with that entrepreneurial mindset because a lot of people left that company and started their own thing. And interestingly enough, I still work with a lot of them too. <laughs> Do you think that that was intentional, that they were looking for that entrepreneurial mindset or was it like minds attract and that's just kind of who they brought in? I think it was just who they brought in and, you know, maybe the personality types or something like that. But there were quite a few of us. You get to a point, you've got things running smoothly. You've accomplished what you set out to accomplish. Why not go find that next challenge in-house at another real estate developer or oil and gas company? You're in Houston. There, there are energy companies everywhere. Like, why not go do that in-house somewhere else? So now you need the story of how I started my company. Let's hear it. That's what we're here for. So I did the whole implementation of the software and I worked with the girl that she was the consultant for the software. And she had talked to me many times about working with her, but she never could guarantee me anything. So I just was like, no, 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 I can't do that. You know, I have to have some kind of real paycheck. <laughs> and one day she goes, do you want to buy my company? And I said, maybe. So I ended up buying her company. It wasn't really much of a company. I basically bought her clients in a sense um, and worked on her projects and things like that. And it sort of just developed. It's completely different now than it used to be. Like, I really don't even do any of the same thing I did when I first started, but that's how I got started. So, okay. When you bought the company, you bought the customers. Bought the customers. And was there any infrastructure? No, she was a one woman operation. I just basically bought the clients. Uh, she was the reseller of those clients. And I went on site and I worked with them on whatever. I got really lucky. I got to work with a company in Houston that does oil and gas. Really great. Also very nice family-oriented company. 
I ended up doing a lot of work for them and their controller left and I filled in and it, things just kind of developed. It's funny how when you go into something, you don't know what the other side's going to look like. Were you married at the time that you bought the company? Yes. What was that conversation like with your husband? Like, hey, I'm thinking about buying a company. So timing is everything. That was in 2011. And it's a little bit of a personal thing, but I had an opportunity to take a risk. My mom moved away and we ended up selling our house and moving into her house. So at the time, we didn't have a house payment. So it was just the time I could do it. I was scared, so scared. <laughs> like, I'm going to fail. Of course I didn't, but <laughs> I don't know. I don't even remember that. I was probably just told him that's what I was going to do. because That's sort of my nature, but. <laughs> I gather that. Something just, you started as a real estate developer in the early 2000s, and you said you bought this company in 2011. So you were there over a decade. Yeah, a long time. Long time. It was leaving family. It was hard. It was not an easy choice by any means. You know, you had to think long and hard because it was a great job. One of my best friends still works there. Definitely more than a paycheck. Oh, yeah. But I don't think I was ever one. It was just about the paycheck. I was always invested. I totally see that. What kind of work? was your husband doing at the time you bought the business? Well, he's in construction. He's built homes. He worked at the Houston Zoo and did construction. I thought that was the coolest job ever. Who gets to redo the flamingo exhibit? Your logo has a flamingo. It does. No, it's not related at all. <laughs> but he's always done construction stuff. So I don't remember exactly where he was when I bought the company, but... Was he running his own construction firm? No, no, no. He was always working for someone else. And... Either early on or, or over the years, has your husband worked in the business? No, never. That probably wouldn't go very well. Some people, <laughs> it works great and other people, it doesn't. I don't think we would do well. I can understand that. All right. You buy the company. We were talking no employees. No employees. It was just me. You bought a book of business. And I've been in the software world for most of my career. And back in those days, most of the software publishers that had a resale model there would be an upfront license fee for the software. The reseller would, you know, keep some of that. There would be the, the professional services to get the systems up and running, usually some ongoing support and, you know, hey, we need reports built and things like that. But there was typically some recurring revenue in the form of maintenance and support where the customer gets billed 20% of the software value every year to get updates. Right. That's pretty much what I was doing. Yeah. Okay. And so when you bought the company, you had some you had some more or less guaranteed revenue coming in. Correct, but it was not a lot. I mean, there were maybe 12 customers. It wasn't much. What gave you the confidence to take the risk? I really don't know, but I jumped in. I was ready for something else, I think, and you know, it was one of my prouder moments because the very first full year I did it, I netted more than she'd ever grossed. And so at that moment, I was pretty proud of myself because, okay, I can do this, right? But I also don't like to be bored. So I was constantly doing something, right? So it was different. You know, you can go into the consulting and think, I just need to make enough to have a paycheck. And I went into it with a different mindset. You'd been in accounting. Most accountants aren't naturally salespeople. No, that's true. But for you to net more than the previous owner ever grossed, you had to have been really good at sales. I don't know if then I was really good at sales, but I was really good at getting the job done. I felt like I did a good job. So then they wanted more things. Now, I wouldn't say every customer felt that way. I mean, you learn a lot when people don't think you do a good job too. You bought a book of business. You got a dozen customers. Take me through winning that first new customer on your own. So that actually ended up being, let's see. So one of the companies I worked for, they kind of sold off. And so I acquired that as well because that was a new customer in the software world. I never really sold Solomon to anyone, interestingly enough. What does that mean? I never sold a new deal of Solomon to someone else. So you built your business by finding customers that were companies that were already on Solomon and coming in and providing professional services? So interestingly enough, that's where it all shifts. There wasn't a good story necessarily from the girl I bought the company from, and we will not name names. She ended up stealing customers back. Did you have a non-compete and you're... Yeah, but you know, it was, I didn't do a good job at the point and I, when I set up the company or, you know, bought it from her that it wasn't going to hold up. 
And truthfully, who wants to go through it? That was the time I decided to pivot. I wasn't going to sell the software. There were new things in the world, new technology. And I was really good at accounting. And I'm not doing accounting anymore. But I'm falling into this controller role. They, they offered the job to me. and I actually turned them down. And it was a great place to work. But I just started. So I was like, no, I have to, I have to go another route. So one of the companies that I was working for, they were like, hey, like, do you have someone that could work in our office? We can't hire anyone as an employee, but we can hire a contractor. I said, well, maybe. So at the time, my sister, she was working somewhere. She wasn't happy. I said, okay, well, here's what we can do. You can take this job and I will build up some like bookkeeping business. And when this contractual time is over, she can come over and do this other stuff. Was she already in the accounting field or were you? No, not at all. You were teaching her. I taught her all, all the accounting she knows. We did that. I mean, guys, we were working in my office. We laugh sometimes because we were sharing my desk in my office at my house. <laughs> so that kind of developed. I started selling bookkeeping. I don't remember exactly how I got my very first one, but I remember I'd meet this old man that he had his own company and he I'd handwrite his checks for him and I'd deliver them to him. Like that's how old school it was for a while, right? <laughs> what year is this? You're handwriting checks to pay vendors? Yeah, for him. So you would fill it out, the amount and who the payee was, and you would take it to him to, yes, to sign? Yes, so bad. <laughs> but you got to start somewhere. What industry was that? He had a property management company. But, you, you know, in the early days, you'll kind of take what comes your way, right? Like, you just do what you need to do. I would never do that now. <laughs> but I needed to start somewhere, and I needed to build that up, and I needed to have work for her. And it's just sort of developed. You know, those days, it was like whatever they were working on, whatever system they had, like we would work in it. Mostly it was QuickBooks. But to kind of circle back, I decided to, when she stole the clients from me, I'm sure she would say she didn't, but I decided to look into Intact because I thought, well, I got to get with the new age too, right? (laughs) What is Intact? So Intact is short for internet accounting. It's cloud-based accounting software. And it was exciting. And I thought, I'll resell that. I was not ready to do that. I went to the very first conference and I thought, oh my gosh, what have we gotten ourselves into? And what year would that have been? So that was about seven years ago. 2015, 2016, somewhere there. Yeah, that conference was, that's how much they've grown too. It's like with that was here in Dallas. It was really small. It was in a small hotel. I mean, I I remember our like happy hour was in like the little bar in there. Like there weren't very many people there. (laughs) So, but yeah, I was not ready for that. So I'm not a reseller of Intact, (laughs) sort of. I want to go back to your sister for a second. Where are you older, younger? I'm much older, actually. I'm nine years older than she is. Okay. We talked earlier about, you know, wouldn't have been a great thing for you and your husband to work together. What was it like working with your sister? I mean, working with family is tricky no matter what. What was it like working with your sister? Well, we still work together. So let's say that. And sometimes it's great. And sometimes it's terrible. Something you said a second ago jumped out at me. You had to find work for her. Did you feel like a responsibility? So, yes. But that's also my nature. So if I were to explain myself and my family role, I'm the mom to everyone. I feel like that. They may say something different, but I helped raise her as a child. I mean, I was nine years older than her. And I had to spend a lot of time watching her. And then my grandmother lived with me for a really long time. And, you know, I kind of was her caretaker in some respects. And and my mom, you know, going through a divorce, I felt like I was taking care of her. So I've always kind of just been the mom. So I'm, you know, yes, I would take on that responsibility for sure. Are you the oldest? There's only two of us. So yes, <laughs> you are the oldest. You said your sister still works with you today. and She does. And you've made it 12, 13, 14 years. Uh, 12 years. She's worked for me for 10. And she was your first employee. She was my first employee, yes. And she's still there. I mean, we've had some hard times. I mean, she would tell you the same. So it's hard. It is hard working with family. And But you have a bigger obligation. I think we would both say, like, you're going to put up with a little bit more than you would, you know, her side and my side because we're family. But she has developed, you know, I hope she hears this because she's really developed everything she's done. She is really good at her job. I take it her role today probably looks very different than it did when she first came on. Huge. I mean, we were doing really minor bookkeeping work at the time, right? 
So for us now, she's implements intact for me. She's our project manager. So she implements intact if we are doing an implementation on our side. She cleans up anybody. that. So she basically, if a new client comes on board, she starts them. She puts all the processes in place. Um, she develops the software and the workflow and how everything's going to be set up and working. And then she'll hand it off to a more permanent team. Because not all accountants are really good at cleaning things up. It takes certain people that can do that. So, But she's great at it. Did she have any formal training or was this just kind of figuring it out over the years as you went along? That's pretty much figuring it out. I mean, her degree, and I hope I get this right, I was in advertising, I think. <laughs> so she didn't really have any formal training in accounting. I taught her mostly accounting. I mean, she'd probably be like, I don't really understand complicated accounting. But for what we do, we really don't do complicated accounting type of things. It's more of the workflow and the process and how we're going to get it done that's really important. Going back to the early days and the person you bought the company from taking clients, what advice would you give to somebody who is doing an acquisition like that? And maybe not just as it relates to taking customers and the anti or the the competitive side of that, but what advice would you give to somebody that's going through an acquisition? It's interesting. I mean, I would have, obviously the paperwork should have been better because, you know, at the time it's like, I don't want to spend a much money on lawyers and things, which maybe I should have. But on the other side of it, I'm okay. I'm fine. You know, I would give, be more careful. I mean, I would have done better agreements with my customers at the time so that they couldn't do that. But at the end of the day, that allowed me to go out and do what I wanted to do. So would you do another acquisition today? I don't know. I've thought about it actually, but nothing has fallen in my lap that was the right thing. And don't share more than you're comfortable with here. And if you don't want to get into it at all, don't. But there are a lot of different ways to acquire a company. You, know, sure. you can pay it all out. You can pay it out over time. You can you can structure a deal a lot of ways. Did you have to come up with a lot of cash? Did you get oh, a loan? No. So no. So she basically, I paid her off. I never had to take out a loan with a bank. I just paid her over time and to a point I paid her off. And then that's about the time she started. She was going to start another business, which did pretty much failed. And I think she just fell back into what was comfortable. Yeah. Let's jump back ahead. You talked about you tried to do the implementation and resale for this accounting software. Did you have a technology background? I mean, apart from that implementation you did for the real estate developer? Not really. I mean, that's what's really funny about the whole thing. If you kind of go backwards, it's like, I did accounting. I thought I was going to do the software thing, which I mean, I did. I did. I did consulting, but I didn't have a technology background at all. You're not the first person that we've had that doesn't come from a technology background that has really dove deep and got into it. How did you go about learning the technology side of things? You know, I don't know the answer to that, which <laughs> just sort of happened. You know, we went to that conference and we're overwhelmed with it, but we pivoted and became an accounting partner with Intact instead of a reseller, which really worked out for us. And, you know, we had to do certain things as far as getting certified and things of that nature. So we took all those courses and we, you know, we always go to the conferences and things like that. And we just doesn't have embraced it. And I love technology and what it can do for you. But I also will sit back and go, okay, technology doesn't always fix the problem either. So you have to kind of fine tune it. Does it make sense to go this route or not? Real quick, you said technology doesn't always solve the problem. And that is so important because there are a lot of people out there. There are a lot of companies that have the mindset of, oh, you know, technology, technology, that's, that's all we need to do. But the people and the process aspect of it are critical to making that technology work. It's huge. I mean, you can't take a broken process that was on paper, I would say, and it's going to be fixed because you put it in a computer program, right? You have to make the process work. And sometimes the technology, like, it will take more to use the, utilize the technology than it will to do it manually. So you really have to kind of fine-tune what that looks like. I see that a lot. Like, they just want to throw it in, and it's not always the answer. Going back a minute ago, you, you talked about you became an accounting partner with Intact. So they have a couple of different partner models, one where you can actually sell and implement right. the software as an accounting partner. Maybe explain that a little bit more. 
So as an accounting partner, we hold the license for the software and we can do people's accounting utilizing this program instead of having to sell it to them. I think it's a great opportunity for customers because now they can utilize this really great software at a better price for them because they get our services plus this great software. So it's a good program. And you don't have a lot of software that does programs like that. Matter of fact, I don't know of any other one really that does. So you are their back office, you are their accounting department, and it just so happens that you you run it on this program called right. Intact. And to your point, you know, it's far more powerful than QuickBooks or Zero or something like that that they would have been on and they, they get a lot more bang for their buck. But product. if you go back to the technology side, it isn't always the fix either, right? You can take it. So we do still work in QuickBooks as well. We do both, which is really important to me because I don't want to force people into this program that may be too much for them too. I mean, it can be overwhelming if you don't really know what it does. So we utilize both systems. Your sister's employee number two, I guess, after you, yes. your first first hire. How long before you hired the third? It was probably a couple of years. I'd have to go back and look. But again, we ended up, let's see, we're, we got our first office, which was outside of your house, outside of my house, because we did work. We actually had, I think, three of us at one time that were working out of my office in my house um, for a while, which was fine. I mean, it worked. And you've got multiple kids. I have four. What was that like having your team working out of your house with young kids? Well, at the time, they were all in school at that point. So that wasn't a, they weren't all there. We're not, we're not changing diapers and, no. you know, getting new juice boxes. I, I do and, not feel like you can be effective if you are trying to have a young child in your house and work. So they were off. But I wouldn't say it wasn't challenging at times, right? Um, we did get our very first office. That was super exciting. It was a very interesting place. We called it the barn because it was an old house. They had like little stores in there and it was like an old Victorian house. And this was like the old reception hall. So it was just this big open area. And we just had people in there and, you know, sometimes chickens would run across in front of us. <laughs> it really was a barn. <laughs> kind of. It wasn't a barn barn. It had a metal roof. It was, you know, they used to have weddings out there and stuff, but we loved it. It was exciting to have our very first office and have a lot of people in there. And I mean, I say a lot, maybe we're four or five of us, <laughs> but you know, we had a setback after a while there. So <laughs> is that something you're willing to talk about? Absolutely. Cause it's hysterical. <laughs> Let's hear it. So. We love this place, right? But we were having septic issues because it was on a septic tank and the owner was going to fix it because the toilets went flush, right? Which is, I mean, we have to have toilets to flush. So he made a throne for the toilet in the bathroom because he lifted it up off the ground because he thought that was going to make it flush better. <laughs> I really felt like we were sitting on a throne. In the bathroom. And your husband who's in construction, did he advise uh, on this? No. Uh, <laughs> So that didn't work. And so then we'd have to leave the office to go into the main house to use the bathroom. And then somebody bought the house and they were living in the house and we were having to go inside the main house to use their bathroom. It was really awkward. But the pivotal moment was we had a girl who worked for us who was pregnant and we found rat droppings on her desk. And that day I moved us out back into my house. <laughs> We took the dining room and the office area, and we all worked out of there for a few months until we found some regular office space. I hate that you experienced that, but I love stories like that because it just shows that things are not always up and to the right, and things are no, not always, <laughs> you know, smooth and perfect and wonderful. You know, it's also kind of nice to have these things that you can look back now and, and laugh at. Were you laughing at the time? Of course not, but it was like, you know what? I have to solve the problem. This is not acceptable. It is not acceptable not to have a bathroom at this point. You know, we kind of dealt with that. And then we cannot deal with wrap droppings, especially when I have somebody who's having a baby. Like, it's just, I literally just said, that's enough. And that afternoon, I picked up all the computer equipment and as many desks as we could, and we just moved it. And I trust you didn't have any trouble getting out of the, the lease at that point. It wasn't point. really a, like a big deal of a lease. Handshake kind of a thing. Yeah, it wasn't really, that was not a big deal. So that... A few months later, we ended up moving in. We had already started looking for space, but we just, I think we stayed in my house for three or four months over the summer, which was not ideal. I mean, listen, I have stories. I mean, I'm out at a client and my dog like has an episode. My sister's having to take the dog to the vet. The dog ends up dying. I mean, it's like the craziest stuff has happened. <laughs> you bought the business 
early 2010s, you start building it up. You've got your sister, you hired a couple more people. And at some point you did that first lease in the barn. It takes a lot of confidence to hire people and it takes a lot of confidence to commit to a lease. At what point in the business did you look at this and go, this really has legs and I'm confident that I can not only feed myself and my family, but these other people and, you know, commit to the monthly expense of a lease. You know, it's funny you ask these questions. And I'm like, I don't know that I thought that I just did it. <laughs> I just kept pushing forward. I never really like, oh, I have this big plan. OK, well, it's just oh, we have to get an office. We have enough people. We have to have some space. Right. Scary. I remember being like, oh, my gosh, am I going to be able to make the rent every month? Right. But OK, we have to do it. Matter of fact, I saw we had this tiny little space and I subleased an office and a desk to someone else too, because we just didn't need all the space that we had. And it wasn't even that much, but you had to get enough space, but you know, with the hopes that we'd grow into it. It sounds like, especially early on, many of your early clients came from relationships that you'd built. You mentioned that your the real estate developer was and still is a, a customer. Other people from that firm went off and started their own companies, and, and now you're supporting them. Have you broken outside of that personal network? Oh, absolutely. Everything looks completely different now. You know, we get new clients from Google or customer referrals or other CPA firms that I know. Like, yeah, so it's completely different now. Early days, it was a lot more of I joined a networking group, so things would happen through that. Which, by the way, I would could not talk like I could not stand up in front of people when I first started the business and talk about what I did or not get really super nervous about talking in front of people. That networking group really helped me to kind of get past that fear. And now actually I'm really interested in doing speaking engagements. So it's funny how your life shifts. You mentioned the networking group. Was it a true networking group or was it something like a Toastmasters where you're actually learning to speak? No, it was a true networking group. It's B&I, if you've ever heard with a business networking international. It was really good for when you're starting up a business. I thought it was great. I mean, I really got out and it was routine. Every week we had a meeting. The meeting went the same way. And I like the structure of it. It forced me to get out there because when you're in the thick of it, <laughs> I didn't intend that. But when you are in the thick of it, you you don't necessarily want to be doing the marketing or the networking, but this sort of forced me to do that. Like I couldn't not do it. I had to go. And I developed relationships and friendships and I got used to being in front of the room. And, you know, I was the president, and the vice president, whatever, you know, through the years. And again, though, I have a tendency to like stay in things maybe too long. It was hard to leave that too, because that was a structured thing I did. But at some point I was in the wrong room and I needed to do something different. What, what other kinds of businesses and I guess how big was that networking group? When I started, it was probably 20-something people, and it grew. When I left, it was almost getting too big. We were kind of creeping at around 50, and we were, unfortunately, I felt like they were bringing in the wrong people. They were just letting anybody join instead of, because we had a really good group of more of commercial type, like B2B, instead of more to business to consumer. Uh, we were more business to business, and that helped a lot. You know, we had uh, lawyers that worked on commercial things. We had engineers and architects and things like that. So our actual part of the organization was more geared to business to business. And so that helped. A lot of times it's more the business to consumers. It sounds like that networking group was a big key to your, certainly to your growth. And I would tie that to success. What are some other things that you've done along the way that you look back and go, man, that was really key to helping us get to where we are? That was one of them. Honestly, if I really am truthful, just trying to do the right thing and do a good job at it. You know, and you're not always going to be perfect. Own when you're not. And do just do the best you can. Do what you say you're going to do. I'm a big believer in that. At my company, we have something we call the mutual understanding of imperfection. We are very, very upfront that we are not perfect. And we also understand and expect that our, our customers are not perfect. And in the course of working together, we are both going to do things that aren't going to work out the way that we want them to, but we are going to make it right when it's on us 
And conversely, we expect that of our customers. And if they are looking for a partner that is going to be perfect, we're not the right one for you. I agree with that. And it's really hard. You know, sometimes it's really hard to let clients go, right? I mean, you want to do a good job for everybody. That's how I feel like it's my nature. I want to do a good job, but sometimes they won't let us do a good job. (laughs) I think it's okay to recognize that not every business relationship is a good fit. And I think it's healthy to turn down business or to let go of a customer when, when it's not the right fit. So yeah, totally do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. Right. And it's also good for business. Like you said, we haven't always been perfect. My employees have made mistakes. I've hired the wrong employees, you know, not unintentionally. But it's what you do when something goes wrong that I think says a whole lot. We were probably three years into the business. We had a project where expectations were misaligned between us and a customer. And there was a situation where things got fairly heated with one of the people at at the client side and, and one of our people. And I'd actually overheard this call from the other room. And afterward, I went and asked my person like, hey, walk me through that. And I picked up the phone and I called their executive sponsor and just said, hey, listen, let's forget the money. Let's forget, you know, whatever it's going to cost to, you know, get this back on track. We'll figure that out. What needs to be done? And that was a turning point, not only in the business relationship, but through those hard times, making yourself a little vulnerable, it deepens relationships in general. And that person has actually become a good friend. And we talk periodically. He's actually gone on to start his business. And I think about how different things would have been if we had taken a different tact on there and we're, we're right and you're wrong and this is what's going to happen. And there's a lot to be said for compromise. Oh, absolutely. I uh, recently hired a really great person into my office and I'm learning so much from her too because I see some of the stuff we could have done better in the past that she's really having the opportunity to take care of now where we're hearing the client more than we heard them before where they thought of us one way, but we're, we're able to shift that mentality with them just by we hear what you're, you're saying we're doing wrong and we're going to do something different. How have you gone about finding good people? That's a good question because it's really hard right now. I actually know her from a client, which I do not recommend taking your client's people. Luckily for me, she was going to leave that where she was working. And It still feels like I think from their side, I took her, but at the same point, she, it was time for her to move on. And so, and I knew her work ethic and if I could clone myself, she's the next best person. So it was like timing was right. So for that hire, that's how that happened. Um, I have another manager in my office that I knew personally, and just from a referral standpoint, I will say most of my best hires have been people knew them from somewhere. Good people know good people. But it's getting harder. I mean, I just had to hire two new people. And you talk about like, you know, my old salesperson that was with me, he actually referred the girl that's going to start next week. So I'm super excited about her. So again, making sure you leave on good terms is always really important because you never know. Yeah. The person that you hired that came from this client, are you still working with that client? Yes. Did you have a conversation in advance She did. She had the conversation with them. Um, And then I subsequently had a conversation with them because that's her nature too. Again, she left there on good terms, gave plenty of notice. Like I said, I still think from their perspective, they would say, you took my employee. And I can't say I would blame them, right? But that wasn't really the true case. We're very opposed to hiring from customers and not just customers, but partners that we work alongside and vendors and things like that. It just gets really, really tricky. And it's not to say that you shouldn't ever do it, but there's a way to go about it that's right. And there's a way to go about it that's not right. Absolutely. What is the state of the company today? How many people do you have? So we have about 10. We are actually outsourcing now as well, which is interesting. Uh, We had tried that a few years ago and we weren't ready to do it because again, You have to have things in place and the process is going and then you can kind of develop it. So we, but we have a couple, we're going to have two people in the Philippines that work for us. And then we have 10 in our office here. So, I mean, I don't think we're really small anymore, but we're obviously not a large company either. 
How did you go about finding people in the Philippines? Is there like an agency that you went through? So, yes, it is an agency. Um, it's called TOA. It's short for the Outsourced Accountant, interestingly enough. So this past year, I joined a group that's just for accounting firms. Their whole thing is to help you grow more profitability in your business. But through that, there's, you know, this person's doing this and they've tried that and this worked and this didn't. So that's how I ran into that organization. The outsourcing, the offshore model has been around for a while, probably early, mid-90s. It really, really picked up. A lot of the technology companies were starting to do a lot in India. India has been a huge hotbed for outsourcing. Philippines has picked up a lot. We're also hearing a lot of people that are moving things near shore to Central and South America. Did you consider other markets or or was it? I really didn't. We just tried this to see. And so far, it's worked great. We've had one girl for about four months. But what I like about this model that I didn't like about the previous time I had tried is that they really work for us. They're our employee. They don't work, you know, they're not my true employee, but they don't work for anyone else. And so, but what's really, really important, this would be my advice, is they have to kind of feel part of your culture, which is hard when they're remote, right? So that's something I'm trying to work on and develop with them is bringing them in. What can we do from a remote standpoint to bring them into what our culture is? So one of the things we do that I learned from this group that I'm in is we have what they call a stand-up daily meeting. It's probably five minutes, at the most every day, but we all stand in the conference room or if people are at home, they stand up at their desks and we we go around the room and we talk about what's our most important task for the day? What else are we doing today? Are we stuck on anything? And so if you, you, but if you really listen in that meeting, you'll get a whole lot out of it. Sometimes I think my employees haven't really gotten understood it, but I'll hear, okay, they've said three days in a row, they're stuck on this thing. Why are we not fixing that? Or what else do I hear when they, what they're talking about? Or you can shift, hey, I really need to get this done today. Can this other person shift what they're doing to help me get that done? So that's been a really good thing that we've done. And I think that also helps to bring those outsourced on a daily basis into our office too. You talk about this is the third day in a row, I've heard them say I'm stuck on something. Do you have some layers of management in the organization? And are there people in your organization that should be picking up on those things and, and taking them? Or does that still fall to you? I do have layers of management in the organization, but sometimes it still falls back to me. <laughs> but I'm a problem solver, right? I hear those things and I'm going to fix it. Or if I notice something not working right, I'm going to fix it. People joke all the time. They're like, I'm the last person people want to do their work when they're out because I'm going to find the issue. You're going to expose the dark corners. And you mentioned you tried the outsourcing once before and you're taking another run at it. What didn't work the first time and what has changed for you to try this again? I would say two things. One, we weren't ready. We didn't have our processes set up in the right way to do it. And enough of that level of work. And two, the organization we hired, we went through too many people too quickly. Like they couldn't keep the person. So we weren't able to really get someone trained either. So we just split. I mean, I think that lasted maybe three months. So you're four months in this time. So you've surpassed that. And we're hiring our second person. Uh, So this organization helped us to understand what we needed to do going into. So I thought that was really important. They talked to us. It's different. Like their culture's different. They work differently. They need different things. You know, we can't go into an interview with someone and ask them about their family. It's not appropriate here, but they need that. They want that there so that you got to got to approach it differently. And this organization taught us how to do that. So I thought that was really helpful. Here in the U.S., you could talk about it, but they have to be the one to bring it up. True. <laughs> very, very tricky. Definitely nuances working across borders. Are they working U.S. hours? They are. They work our hours. So that's nice, too. And what's the time difference for them? I'm pretty sure they're working overnight. I don't know the exact time difference, but yeah, it's overnight. It's probably fair to say you may never physically meet these people in person. That's very true. And I've thought about that, actually, because there is some stuff in their paperwork about, like, possibly bringing them. And I think if they're there long enough and working with us long enough that I would, I think it would be a good thing to bring them over and they'll feel more part of our organization. And for them, though, apparently, like, from my understanding, it's a big deal to work for a U.S. company. So that's pushing them forward in their career as well. I get that. I was listening to another podcast yesterday, in fact, and 
this guy was talking, he was talking about taxes and people trying to optimize their, their life and where they live due to taxes. And he said, you know, let's just say that you're going to be taxed at 40%. You can leave the U S and renounce citizenship and, you know, not, not have that. But he said, think about the millions and millions and millions of people every year that move to the U S and are willing to take that on. And I hate taxes. Well, who does? <laughs> Listening to that, I was like, huh, that's that's really interesting. And so... It's very true, though, right? Yeah. There's something so attractive about the U.S. that people are willing to, to do those things. And and I think you probably... Maybe someday you'll have some workers from the Philippines in, in your Houston office. You never know. Look, we cannot predict the future. <laughs> Let's kind of talk a little bit more about where you are today. Your job is very different than it was early on. What are the parts of the job that you enjoy the most and what are the parts you enjoy the least? So I love to solve the problems, which is probably why they don't want me in them because I will dig in and I will fix it. I'm solving problems not only for our clients, but also for our employees and how they do their work. So I love doing that. I love selling, weirdly enough. I'm not a salesperson. I can go into it to sell you something, but I'm passionate about what I do. And you're relational. Yes. So I get on a call with people and it's like, it's just natural. Um, I didn't know I'd become an accountant, become a salesperson, but that's what's happened. The things that I hate doing, like we do financial packages every month, right? I'm not the one who should do them because it'll never get all the way. I'm really a good idea person, not making it all come together. (laughs) Not a a detail person? No, I am a detail person. I am detailed. Like I'll get in there and look, I was doing bank recs the other day, right? But at the same point, the whole thing, all neat and pretty, that's probably not my forte. <laughs> all right. So you really enjoy the sales aspect of what you do today. Some of the more tedious things, not so much. Are there things that you used to do that you miss doing? Not really. Talking with people that have grown up through software organizations and that were involved in, in product in the early days of development, it's interesting because a lot of them, they haven't written a line of code in years. And I, I hear people say, man, I really, I really miss actually writing the code and, and being a part of the, the product. So nothing uh, lingering from, from years past that you wish you could do again. No, not really. You know, I, in the beginning, I mean, I was doing all the work. I was doing all the marketing. I was doing all the things. It's nice to not have to do all the things, um, having the right people doing those things to people you can count on to make sure they get done. That's great. Now, no, I mean, I don't, I think something as you go in your business, you know, everybody teaches, they all talk about how you need to be working on your business, not in it all the time, right? I'm to that point. No, doesn't mean we don't have setbacks. Some employee leaves, I have to help out with something. But for the most part, I don't work in it all the time. I'm more working on it. What is your work-life balance like? It's kind of been bad lately. <laughs> Most of the time, it's up until the last few months because we just had some setbacks, but I pretty much work at work. You know, not to say that I don't think about it all of the time, right? Like, I think as an entrepreneur, I mean, I wake up in the morning thinking and solving problems, but I don't work all the time anymore. I mean, I used to tell people that because you talked about it earlier, like the big five or whatever, when people interview with us and like, we don't work a lot of overtime. And I explain work-life balance when I'm interviewing people. I need you sometimes to give to the business. And sometimes I got to give to you right? Sometimes I need some overtime. Sometimes you're going to need to leave early for some reason. So it's kind of a give and take thing. I love that. That's a really important mindset, both for the employer and the employee. Yeah. Cause we've run into people where it's like they're clock watchers, you know, clock in, clock out, clock in, clock out. And those aren't the people that are right for our organization. I want them to passionately want to work there too. And you know, in fairness, though, like it's hard to build the culture you want to. You know, in the early days, my stress level was higher and the culture wasn't as good. So I've had to shift things to to make that better. Obviously, you've got a lot of people on the team that are are doing the accounting role. They're the hands on the keyboard that are you know, making the journal entries and doing the reports and, and so forth. But do you have people in other kind of departmental type roles that aren't like customer delivery focused? Like you mentioned marketing earlier. Do you, do you have a marketing person? Well, she you- starts on Monday. <laughs> so yes. <laughs> well, yeah, also I outsource marketing. You know, I went into, I actually, I thought, well, I need more of an assistant person because like, the things I don't like to do, 
I don't mind getting on the call for the sales process, but I don't want to do all the paperwork kind of behind it or make the presentations. So I went into like hiring an assistant. Well, I hired one that didn't want work out. And so I went a little more marketing focused this time before COVID. I think everything's pre-COVID, post-COVID, right? Pre-COVID, I had this great girl who basically was somewhat of an office manager assistant, but she had more of a marketing background and she was fantastic. Um, she really helped develop our branding and, uh, you know, she came to me and she's like, you have to make a brand book. And I was like, a brand book? Okay. Like, well, we have a brand book. You know, I wouldn't have thought of that. So I, I decided to go a little more marketing focused, but also they just to help me too. <laughs> Is this a good time to talk about how the Flamingo came about? Sure. So my first logo that somebody designed for me was a big pink D and a C for Divine Consulting. Nothing extravagant there. It was pretty boring. I always liked pink, so it was pink. But as I mentioned earlier, I was in that networking group. And one year I won, was it an award for something like, I don't even remember what it was. So we, we had this dinner and as winner of the award, you had to decorate, put, make a table decoration. So that year I took one of those big, huge pink flamingo floats. That was going to be my table decoration. Unfortunately, the float was as big as the table. So I just had the neck sticking up. Yeah. Table's typically, what, eight feet around? So Yeah, one of those eight-person round tables, right? I had this huge. So I, I could only fill up the beak and the head of it, right? But it was still fun, right? So <laughs> that's kind of how this starts getting rolling. So the next year, my sister has, because she's joined us, and she's in the same group in a different, not my group, but a spinoff on another group. She wins the award. Well, that year she wears, maybe her and her, her husband, they, they wear a flamingo suit. It sort of just evolved. And so, so I was like, I'm going to redo my branding and we need to do something different. And the girl, I don't even know if we had told her that, but she came up with this flamingo. And it stuck. By the way, people send me flamingo photos all the time. By the way, I'll get the same one like 10 times. It's funny now, like, but I'll tell people, you'll think of me. The flamingo has a name too. Let's hear it. So the flamingo's name is Frank. It's our values. So it stands for fun, reliable, accessible, nurturing, and knowledgeable. That is awesome. There are a lot of organizations that if you asked their leadership, hey, list your core values, they would really struggle. They'd probably get a few of them like right off the bat. But the way that you've tied that in your branding, you've got that acronym like that's awesome. It's easy to remember. I, I guarantee every one of your employees could rattle that off. No it's on problem. the wall. I mean, we have a big sticker flamingo and it says Frank on the wall and it's all there. I hope they can rattle it off. We have a problem if they can't. When you go back to the office, you need to you need I should ask them. We're going to yeah. quiz them. Yeah. The flamingo came about because of an award. We talked about another award as we started our conversation. The Aggie 100. Tell people what the Aggie 100 is. So the Aggie 100 is the top 100 businesses that are Aggie owned in any given year based on revenue growth. And so you made the list. Unfortunately, I've only made the list once. I'm really working on that next one. But that was 2020. Okay. I mentioned earlier, we ourselves also, we made it. And that was one of the absolute highlights of my, at this point, almost nine year Same. run. Like that was amazing. Like it just... Going to the dinner and taking the picture, which is so funny, right? Like, but it was such a big deal to me. I loved it. I was like, I don't care if I'm number 100. I'm here. You're on the list. When you look back over these years, what are some other highlights? We did win uh, Houston's Best Places to Work one year, um, last year. That was pretty exciting. Congratulations. Thank you. I didn't get it this year. But you know, you win some, you lose some, and you got to keep trying at it, right? Highlights too. I have a line of credit, never had to use it. That's a big deal to me. So no debt. I take it you're still 100%, you know, privately yeah. just you. Again, kind of looking back, when you bought the business way back when, knowing what you know now, what advice would you go back and give yourself? I would do agreements better from the start. <laughs> But other than that, I don't know, because, you know, my nature is just work hard at it. And that's what I've always done. I'm not afraid of the hard work. That's what I would tell people. Don't be afraid of the hard work. Is there anything that you would want to change about the state of your business today? 
today, we're really seeing some momentum in the right direction. I guess some other advice I would have given myself is maybe invest in the right people earlier because you don't really, that can set you back, the wrong people. Not to say I've had the wrong people, but I haven't always necessarily had the right people to push us more forward in the growth that I'd like to have. So doing that sooner would be. When you say invest in the right people, you're talking more about the selection of people that you hired, not like putting them through training or investing in them. Well, that too. I mean, that's important. I mean, I think I could do a better job with that, honestly. Sometimes I was scared to spend the money. It's an accountant thing. You worry about the numbers. I'm always looking at the numbers, but sometimes you need to spend the money. I get that and get the looking at the numbers. I took a five-week sabbatical earlier this year, and I completely disconnected from the company, didn't look at my email, didn't look at Slack, didn't call and check and see how things are going. But I have to confess, I still looked at the bank accounts every morning. Some things you just can't shake. I met with a prospect recently, and he was like, he thought I was so expensive. By the way, it was not that much. (laughs) He was telling me how I was pricing things wrong, and I thought, but you can't afford me. (laughs) I'm not doing something wrong. (laughs) Right. You know, expense is relative to value. And if people see the value, then it's not necessarily expensive. Well, and you know, that's the thing we're really working on now is like making sure we're getting the right clients who value what we do because we want to be valuable to them. You know, I say, I don't like the bookkeeper term because when people just think of us as you're their bookkeeper, that's all they want to pay for, and they don't find value in what we produce. And so they're not the right fit always. Right. We talked earlier about right fit, and you know, sometimes it's better to, to walk away from clients, walk away from business, say no to things. I was having a conversation over lunch with somebody the other day that was talking about this company that was trying to enter this ecosystem, and they, it was a software thing, told the software publisher, yeah, we're not interested in working with organizations that have less than 200 headcount. And person I was talking to was like, I don't know, I think it's kind of silly. I'm like, you know, I don't know that that is. They know who they are. They know who they want to be. And they're laser focused on their type of customer. So he's not your type of customer. What's one of the biggest surprises over the years? Um, getting fired. I feel like that's really hard. Getting fired by a client. Ones that you didn't expect it. Like there's been some times where I thought we should go ahead and let them go before they let us go. Like You know, and those would be some times I'd look back and go, we should have done that sooner. But having a client that you really like working with, not want to work with you anymore, those are probably the hardest things, which doesn't happen much, but it has. Do you have any lessons learned or takeaways from that experience? It seems like you were caught off guard. I don't know, honestly, like why it really happened. So there's a couple of things that I play with, like maybe that I won't get into, but I don't think... There was a mistake that happened, and it, but that happened years before. And so, like, I don't know if that was the real reason. And I don't, you know, we still did all the right things. So I really wouldn't have done anything different. I mean, I'll, he lives in my neck of the woods. I'll probably run into him in the grocery store. <laughs> I mean, we still parted ways on a good term, so. Well, what's next? You know, like I said, I'm still trying to gain some momentum and have some growth. I'd like to get on the Eggy 100 again for that growth. So that would be huge for me. I'm pivoting what I'm trying to do in the organization, having the right structure in place so I can more do things like this, um, do some more webinars, get out, maybe do some speaking engagements. Kind of the next thing for me too, you sometimes need to change, right? You can't always continue to do the same thing. So I'm really looking forward to what is next. Out of curiosity, have you had any mentors along the way? So not a true mentor, but when I was in that networking group, there was a a lady in there and she runs an architecture firm and I really looked up to her. Like just listening to what she'd done, where she's gotten to, how she runs her organization. I took a lot from that. We still are in a, a group together and she does a really good job with her culture, and I'm very impressed by that. And so I'm trying to mimic some of that stuff. Um, so that would probably be one of my closest mentors. She may not even realize that, although I've told her a few times. You want to give her a shout out? I think you should uh, talk to her. I'd love to. Her name's Elise Makrovich with A&B Architects out of Houston. Is there anything that you 
thought you would talk about, wanted to talk about that we haven't got into? Any advice, any wisdom to pass along? I don't know. <laughs> like I said, I think the most important thing is like, this is missing a little right now in the workforce. Don't be afraid to put some time and effort in, right? You do need to have work-life balance, but sometimes the balance needs to be towards work and you will be amazed what you can achieve. That's a good spot to end. <laughs> Jennifer, thank you so much for being on the in the thick of it. This was awesome. Thank you. That was Jennifer Devine, CEO and founder of Divine Consulting. To learn more, visit divineconsultingllc.com. If you or a founder you know would like to be a guest on In the Thick of It, email us at intro at founderstory.us. 